Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going? Great. Slept three hours, ready to do this. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> well, we, we've got we've got lots and lots of news this week, right? Of course, cabinet was formed, and of course, we're going to have lots to say about that. We'll break everything down a little bit later. Uh, but, but first off, there was a really fun story that I think we have to we have to talk about, right? Yeah, Basila Davos. That was the story this week. I mean, this got all the attention. And the story is that, you know, there's this Davos conference, basically the World Economic Forum, which is basically a bunch of rich people coming together and deciding what happens to the world or talking about what happens to the world and what they're going to do for to make it better. Obviously, they mean fuck us all up, but still like all the state people, statesmen go there to, you know, to sell their souls. I mean, to to invite, invite and encourage investments in their countries. And Basil was one of them. He was invited there and then. Everyone in Lebanon was like, he doesn't represent us. And there were petitions against him. And all of this campaign happened just spontaneously out of, you know, people's anger against him. And we've talked about this a lot of times. He's like the most hated politician in the country, like by far. Yeah, maybe, you know, we've talked about this. Like he, after the October 17th revolution broke out, he started to lay low, like yeah. very low public profile. Popping up Davos may not be the, the best look for him, though, because he was on a panel there. And really, he just got roasted. I mean, yeah, he wasn't really on a panel. He was like on that barbecue thing, you know, like where you get grilled. <laughs> like, it's just yeah, literally yeah, yeah. the the host, Hadley Gamble, roasting him all the time, asking him all of these questions with quite a performance. Um, to be to be very fair, like it was not the it was not it was by far not the most professional performance I've seen. She has these weird face expressions that she makes. Like she asks him a question and then she raises her eyebrows and she looks at him like he's an evil monster who's just about to get caught. Like, like she definitely knew that she was interviewing somebody who is not beloved by anyone, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And she expressed that before the interview. So what happened is basically people started like campaigning against him going there and the petitions and stuff. And then she said that, I understand, I hear your voice, but I'm going to be harsh on him. Uh, she said that on CNBC where she works. And, uh, and then after that, the FPM vice president, the vice president of the party, accused her of being part of a Zionist conspiracy of Hadley Campbell, the, the, the TV host, <laughs> of being part of a Zionist com- conspiracy against Basile's reputation. Because, you know, the Zionist project is very concerned with Basile's yeah, reputation. Yeah, right. And, uh, and because the evidence for her was that Gamble had, the TV host had a photo with, with uh, the former Israeli president, Shimon Perez. So that's it, all you need to know. All, all the evidence you need in a case. And yeah, there's this science conspiracy against him. Anyway, it was all just a bunch of fun things that happened this week. Nothing really important. He got grilled with some basic questions like, why didn't you fix electricity? How do you have a private jet if you get $5,000 per month as a salary? Which, which by the way, on, on that like line, that. yeah, uh, the, the host asked uh, Basile, how did you get here? You know, like, oh, does it, and, and Basile was adamant it was not on taxpayer money. And he basically sort of admitted that it was like, oh, friends paid for it. And fucking Sigrid Cog. Oh, my God. She came out of nowhere with just this devastating line saying like, oh, we're not allowed to have friends like that in, in government. 
because uh, she's she is now um, a minister in the Dutch government. Uh, you, if, if you know that name though, Sigrid Kog, it's because she was here in Lebanon from like 2015 to 2017 as the mm-hmm. UN special coordinator for Lebanon, and so she knows Gibran Basile very well. She knows all of the players very very well from her time here, and that was just a, a devastating comment coming from her uh, also on the panel. Uh, yeah. Tor- uh, aimed at the seal. Yeah, it was it was strange that actually she. I, I mean, I was very surprised to see her take this stance, like being throwing. She was Kag was throwing shade at Basile like very clearly, and uh, it was surprising to me because I know her as a diplomat, you know, more or less someone who doesn't say things. Right. Um. Right. But uh, one of the interesting things that I just want to point out in this interview is uh, actually something serious, which is what Basile has. What Basile said during the interview. Uh, are the reasons why he couldn't basically achieve anything uh, or his party couldn't achieve anything although it has the largest parliamentary bloc and these are many things one of them is the fact that you know uh, in a confessional system you can only get a quarter maximum of the parliament or whatever which means that you will never get a majority to form a government alone to achieve your things so he's basically saying two things he's saying he's saying that his party uh, cannot attract more than a quarter because it's basically only attracting part of the christians and it's not a cross-sectarian party he's saying that his allies from other sectarian groups are not part of his project so he's basically blaming his allies on the fact that he couldn't get anything done in in his time in government and he's saying, and he said it very explicitly, that the confessional system should go away and that the seculars, that we should move towards secularism. He also said the economic and monetary policy of Lebanon over the last 30 years have been bad and should be changed. And then you look at all of these things he's saying, like concession democracy, confessionalism and sectarianism, and then economic policy. And you see that FPM didn't only like, you know, tolerate these things. They had like the most active role in like, uh, re, you know, re-establishing all of these pillars of the Lebanese system over right. the last ten years, especially in rhetoric and in the performance, of course, in their ministries, but also in rhetoric, the rhetoric of partnership between uh, or bringing back Christians' rights in the state and taking as much uh, as possible from the resources of the states for the for the Christians, and the the idea of like letting go completely of the project of secularism and going into a, a very Christian-focused. Uh, rhetoric and like their commitment to their allies and being in all of these governments that didn't achieve anything under the pretext of you know national unity etc it's basically they have he's he's talking about the problem and he represents it yeah absolutely that is uh, a very interesting fun little story but i think the big story that we really have to talk about is what happens after basile right what happens after he's no longer the foreign minister but there we have a new foreign minister and we have a new slate of ministers after 33 days since Hassan Diab was uh, designated as prime minister after 84 days with no government Lebanon finally has a new cabinet and this new cabinet is it, it looks a little bit different from what we were talking about last week they added two ministers right and so instead of an 18 member cabinet we are for the first time in independence Lebanon getting a 20 member cabinet and and there's some good things about this as well I mean I mean first off 20 is probably better than 30 you know bring down the size <laughs> a little bit it, baby steps fewer state uh, ministries for sure yeah 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 they they basically don't really have them right with the exception of omsar uh and we have six ministers who are women which is a, another first and a really big deal here in lebanon i mean just the last cabinet that had four ministers was sort of like breaking uh you know breaking records i think i think the previous uh record was like two female ministers in a cabinet and then last cabinet we had four and now we have six so now basically almost a third 
of the ministers are women, which is, you know, maybe not great as a final state of, of things, but it is a step in the right direction, right? So we're, mo we're moving in the right direction. Hopefully after this government falls uh, at some point or resigns or whatever happens, the next government maybe will have more equal representation. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just think that they did this to make it look nice, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if that works in your favor, then sure. why yeah, not yeah, take yeah. it, right? Um, there are no MPs in this cabinet. There are only two former ministers, uh, Hassan Diab, himself and Demianos Qatar and the rest of them are like fresh faces I am still getting familiarized with all of their names and faces I like if you show me a face of somebody I probably don't recognize it yet uh I need to do some flashcards or something <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like you know basically 18 new names roughly yeah um and another good thing about it is that according to Diab nobody is running for parliament in the next election which means that nobody's here to make some you know uh, like a good legacy and then inf just invest it in or basically what the idea is that you don't get to a ministry and then start distributing resources just to become an MP afterwards this is what happens allegedly with a lot of people who you know suddenly become very successful MPs they get to a ministry they focus on their own area on their own constituents they distribute some resources there and then they get more luck as you know clientele uh, clientelist lords or whatever so uh, Diab said that nobody from the current government will be running in the next parliament, which is in the next parliamentary elections, which may, which is uh, a good sign in that sense. Yeah, so, and only a couple of years off at this point, so you have to think about that. Definitely. So basically, it's a it's a government of people without a lot of political ambition, uh, a government mostly of like people who work in advisory roles more than actually you know politicians of any kind. Right, right, right. Now, now to get down to you know to shave the 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 size of the cabinet down from you know usually about thirty people to twenty, they they had to put some portfolios together, and you know this because there are literally twenty one ministries in the country, plus uh, OMSAR, the Office of the Minister of State for Administrative Development, and so they had to combine a few of these things together so that you could have just 20 ministers, including a prime minister who doesn't have an actual portfolio. So what they did is they put OMSAR together with the environment ministry, which I don't understand how that works. Uh, the, the two ministries really don't have a whole lot in common. They don't really work a whole lot with each other, but maybe they they're are the both two really the lowest, small. Maybe they're the two with the lowest budgets. So they were like, okay, just put them yeah, together. Essentially, yeah, essentially. And give them to the independent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Demianos uh, Qatar, who had been the finance minister and economy minister under the Makati government back mm -hmm. in 2005, back when they combined ministries in a way that made sense, economy <laughs> and finance together. Uh, he was very much demoted to this uh, OMSAR role and environment role, right? They they also put together social affairs and tourism. Again, I have no idea what the overlap there is. Uh, in past governments where they've gone small, it, it, this doesn't really make sense. You know, social affairs maybe uh, could go with um, some some other thing, you know, like I, I believe uh, social affairs has been paired, you know, like with uh, labor before in the past. So, yeah, you, you have social affairs and tourism, which don't really make sense, but they're put together. And then you have probably the best pairing of all the last one, which is culture and agriculture. Great rhyme. I love this one. I absolutely Amazing. love it. Yeah. yeah. I, 
I have no idea of what what the two have in common other than in, in English, not in Arabic, in English. <laughs> they have both have culture in them. Yeah, in Arabic they don't have even a lot of letters in common. <laughs> but uh, sure, like the the minister when he was talking to LBC was trying or MTV or something, he was trying to make sense of uh, of the combination, and he's like, yeah, there's some of this and that, and then some of that and this, and I had no idea what he was saying. They're absolutely, I mean, not. Why not, I don't know, culture and tourism or environment and culture and tourism? I don't know. You can combine these things. Why the hell would you combine agriculture with, with culture, really, when, like, they're completely different fields, like, yeah, you need different yeah. experience. You're dealing with a different kind of ministry with different uh, functions, etc. So it doesn't make any sense. Although I, th- I think the the portfolio combining sort of it's, it starts to make a little bit more sense once you dive into it a little bit, uh, you know, well, just like we were talking about with the small budgets for environment and OMSAR, if we start looking at the party shares, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so the Free Patriotic Movement of Jabron Basile, they have six portfolios, six ministers. They've got the Defense Ministry, Foreign Ministry, Energy Ministry, Justice Ministry, Economy Ministry, and the Ministry for the Displaced. Now, if you look at those six those are actually ministries that they had before, mm-hmm. uh, e- either as the FPM or as uh, President Michel Aoun's share. Um, and so, so far, it looks a lot like the last cabinet. You have Tashnak, which is uh, the Armenian ally of the FPM with, with one seat, uh, Youth and Sports. That's, that's something new, uh, change of portfolios. Um, the LDP of Talal Arslan with two uh, seats, Information, and the Combined Social Affairs and Tourism uh, Minister, and so all of those, you know, that makes up nine ministers right there. Those are that, that's basically Gibran Basile and his very close allies. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he has basically nine votes in cabinet. He, he definitely has more than a blocking third. He can rely on Tashnag alone, not even Talal Arslan for a blocking third in this government. So he's, he seems to be sitting in a pretty good position. The consultative gathering. Uh, of Sunni politicians uh, who are not allied with Mustabal, with uh, Saad Hariri. They got one seat. Hassan Diab has himself, of course, and he was also able to name three other ministers. The Marada movement of Suleiman Frangia got two ministries, public works and labor. Um, Hezbollah got the health ministry and the industry ministry. And Amal retained the finance ministry and retained agriculture and culture, but they became just one minister, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so if you look at these ministries, just like with the FPM, like you see a lot of commonalities. The FPM has a lot of the same ministries as before. Amal has the same ministries, basically. Hezbollah has their health ministry, and they got industry back, which is one of the ones that they, you know, have had a few times in the past. Um, Marado retained public works, and they got labor because the LF is no longer in the government. And of course, Hassan Diab is the prime minister, and then he also was able to name the interior minister a, a Sunni position, uh, right? One one of the main Sunni positions. And and so you see, like, there's a, a a lot of the logic, a lot of the sectarian logic, a lot of the political logic from the last cabinet actually, you know, g- goes goes into the DNA of this cabinet as well. And you can see how, like, maybe Hassan Diab basically just sat down when he was named and decided, okay. What can I do? You know, how can I put this together without upsetting the apple cart completely and throwing all of the, you know, all the chips in the air? Instead, let's just use what we know works for these parties and continue that with a few minor changes. Yeah, exactly what the people were revolting against. 
It sounds like a great, you know, post-uprising government to have exactly the same process <laughs> that you had before, sectarian quotas and political quotas. And you remember last week we were discussing the government and we were saying that we don't have a cabinet yet because of a disagreement over the Druze seat and the Catholic su- seat and the Marada being in or out and Talal Islam being in or out. In the end, they added two seats. They gave them each one and therefore t- each of them has two seats now. And that's how it's resolved. Like... Look at this government that's coming to us. Instead of being like, you know, fighting over a program, over economic or social policy or whatever it might be that you actually need to discuss and make decisions about in this period of time in Lebanon's history. They're fighting over how many seats Talal Islam got. He got like 7,000 votes in the elections, in the parliamentary elections. He's not even a proper zaim, if not for Gibran Basile supporting him. Or for Simon Frangi having what, like five MPs? Now, like the whole fate of the country is, is, you know, is dependent on these minor things, like the share of these uh, small, relatively small politicians. It's absolutely, really, it's absolutely humiliating or like uh, indignifying to the people of, of Lebanon to for Diab to come and say, I am the the government that came because of the revolution. And he said it in, the, in his speech, in this first speech, right, in Babda. He said, like, he was praising the revolution and that basically this government is a result of it. And then we see that, you know, it's just exactly the same thing. But without the known faces, we have, instead of the known faces, we have, you know, the advisors. And many of these people were advisors to politicians that were ministers in the last, gov- in the last government and the one before, yeah. So that's actually a good question, though. Like, how many of these people actually know what they're talking about? You know, how many of them are actually qualified to be the minister of whatever they are minister of? Yeah, I mean, if you look at all of their profiles, the maximum we can we can get to is seven. Like, seven people who have been trained or worked in the field that they will be working on as, as ministers. So it's not that in general you need to have, like, an expert as a minister. It's not the case in any country, right? But at least... When you have two criteria, one of them is being politically independent and one of them is being technocrat. If you're saying, okay, we couldn't do the political independence thing because, you know, parties need to nominate their ministers, but they are technocrats, at least be honest about that. They are not even technocrats. If seven out of what 20 uh, are technocrats, there is a main, main problem. And there are ministries in which, like, things are quite sensitive today and you just can't just have anyone there, you know. You can't have an economy minister who, who does not work on economic policy, a labor minister who has no idea about labor conditions and statistics and things related to unemployment etc it's just basic things that you need in this part in this time and and it's not in the government right yeah you you mentioned the economy ministry right there the, the new economy minister Raul Nami. he's sort of like economy adjacent right he is a, a banker essentially and and that's what we need now you know <laughs> a banker to save the economy from the banks perfect right 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 awesome. i mean and he's only not the only he's not the only one in the government who is from the banking um kind of background or close to banks etc we have many people in government Diab himself the the prime minister is on the board of of lucid investment bank you have Muhammad Fehmi the interior minister and remember now we're we're witnessing you know attacks and and a lot of anger against the banks Muhammad Fehmi our new interior minister is the security advisor of Blom Bank has been the security advisor of Blom Bank for a long time Uh, so that's basically his full-time job after retirement as a brigadier general from the army so he's an army guy who's coming after a period of repression and a period of attacks against the banks. He's an army guy specialized in bank safety and security. And he's our new interior minister. Great, really. This is the revolution's <laughs> government. I'm so happy, so excited. Thank you, Diab. Love you. 
<laughs> really, if if you want to describe this this government, the best way is basically the financial elites government. It's it it represents their interests, and and this is this is really what the most what was most frustrating to me about it that they were so uh, explicit with it, like bringing a banker, like the ch- executive chairman of a bank, putting him in an economy ministry, is basically saying it's not that we will not counter the interests of the banks, it's that they are represented directly in government, you know, as the banking sector itself, more or less. So it's a really shame. It's a, it's a big shame because uh, any financial solution, any solution to the fiscal issues that the government will be enacting in the future will either be in the interest of the banks or the rest of the population and the economy, to be honest. It's, it's no longer uh, any, any, there's no longer any win-win situations, you know, possible. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we, we sort of knew that this was the case. We, we knew that the Zoma weren't going to give up their power easily. They were, they were going to give up their power, you know, just because of, you know, an uprising that started up and, and the way that the way that the shares were handed out and assigned and everything. We knew that nothing, it, it seems as though the elite, the upper elite of Lebanon has decided basically we're not going, we don't want to change the system in, in, in any way. We want to sort of batten down the hatches and ride this out and hopefully it'll turn out good, but don't expect big reforms don't expect really huge measures unless their back gets pressed really far up against the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now we're, we're in a position where the, the ministers got named, they met for their first cabinet session and they, they assigned a sort of a working group committee to draft the ministerial statement. That is the next thing up. According to the constitution, they've got 30 days to come up with a ministerial statement that goes to the parliament, then the parliament votes to give them confidence or deny them confidence. Uh, and this all has to happen uh, or, or they have to send the ministerial statement to parliament within 30 days. Uh, basically by the 20th of February, we need to have this basically done. And, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer than 30 days. Like the canonical example for everything terribly going wrong in Lebanon is the uh, government of Tamam Salem. Uh, yeah. And that took uh, 33 days for uh, for Parliament to grant confidence, uh, but but that is the next step that we're looking into right now. But so far, things like there there have been positive steps, and there have been some like sort of bizarre missteps already uh, from uh, from the new ministers, right? Yeah, I, I mean, what I noticed about this whole government is that it came like there's a political deal that was made kind of that it was done and then the people were were very flexible like were like uh, moved across ministries some of the ministers themselves confirmed that they were considered being considered for other ministries uh, as well before being given the ministry that they were given depending on the political share or the sectarian quota etc and uh, so a lot of people might be in the not in the right place for them or whatever but also like they don't have an agenda really that is bringing them together as a team which Diab and Basile and many people have said this was the main criterion for this government and and many of them have been like fucking up pretty bad um <laughs> <laughs> i mean labor like the best example is the labor minister Lama Dwayhe she she had an interview right with LBC and she, she was being asked about what she will do as a minister. And she's like, clearly we have very high unemployment rate. I'm quoting here. Of course, we can't promise that it will become. And she stopped. And then she said, you know, as much as possible, we will try to work with other ministries to find a way to decrease unemployment. Uh, also, there is work being done in the ministry on organizing foreign labor. So we will continue this as well. So basically, absolutely nothing. She didn't say anything. And then he asked her, the host asked her, do you have a vision or will you just pick up from where uh, your predecessor, Abu Sulaiman, left? 
She's like, I met with Abu Sulaiman, he did good work in the ministry, so we will definitely pick up. We will also collaborate with NGOs to improve laws, to improve the situation of women, following up on the sacking of workers from companies. And here she touched, obviously she didn't reply to the original question, which is, do you have a vision? She touched on this thing, which is sacking of workers. And this is a great, like an insane phenomenon that's happening now. A lot of workers are being sacked from so many companies or being told to work on small shifts or etc. Like get paid by commission instead of salary, etc. It's just a big, big deal. And so I asked her, how will you deal with this situation or the issue of sacked workers? And the response was, um, you know, in the end, uh, I have a company and uh, one should look at the company owner and the workers. That's it really what she said. And the workers have been very understanding of the employers uh, recently. Like it's Um, really the employers that are hurting here, not the workers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the workers (laughs) are just, you know, being empathetic towards the employers. They're being sacked, but it's fine because, you know, solidarity between you and the person exploiting (laughs) you and then sacking you from work. She, she, this is a conflict of interest, right? You ask a labor minister, what are you going to do about people being sacked? And she's like, I have a company. What she's saying is like, I'm sacking people too. You know, we're all doing it. What can we do? The workers have to understand. Horrible, really horrible beginning. And I'm very angry at this person that I just recently discovered. And the labor ministry, like in general, you you mentioned uh, uh, Camille Abu Suleiman, her predecessor. He stepped in it really big with, with restrictions on Palestinian workers. Um, so that's something that she's going to have to deal with uh, the continuing aftermath of that. And then also just in general, in case you don't know this, the labor ministry is just sort of like known as one of these ministries where the labor minister can make a lot of money on the side through corruption and like making people pay extra for their work visas and stuff like that. So this is just one of those things that uh, you know, I'm not making any specific allegations against any specific ministers, but it's one of those it is known things that several ministers in the past have supposedly have allegedly been enriched through illicit means. And it's something that any labor minister automatically comes under not enough scrutiny, but at least some public scrutiny. So this is, this is another thing that she's going to have to deal with. She's not off to a good start. I'm sure she's probably smarter than what we've seen, though. Uh, but, but she's going to have a lot to deal with. This is a, a really important portfolio and one that uh, comes under a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, and I hope she learns about, like, I mean, really about this this field more because it's she cannot go on like this. Like, she needs to meet with her advisors as soon as possible and get much better positioning on things. We also had a little um, fuck up by the foreign minister, whose Twitter account, apparently, or one of his social media accounts, I think it was Twitter, announced the death of the Syrian foreign minister, Walid Mu'allim. Who's still alive. (laughs) Who's still alive. And then uh, the minister came out and said, no, 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 my account was hacked, etc. It's just like... One of the things that happen, by the way, if anyone is, is tricked by this, the information minister, Manal Abdel Samad, is not tweeting crazy shit. It's a parody account that is not saying, it's not explicitly saying it's a parody account, but there's one that's called Manal Abdel Samad on Twitter that's basically tweeting at like TV channels making fun of their shows <laughs> and like making fun of the previous, of the former uh, telecom, um, information minister, etc. So that's not her, don't, don't panic. <laughs> I'm mean, probably the uh, the minister that has received the most press th- thus far, other than the prime minister himself, uh, is the new finance minister, Khazi Bosni. Now, the, the the situation in the country, obviously, it, it's still not doing too well uh, e- economically. 
uh, the lira uh, was fixed at 2000 this week and that was a decision made i think tuesday night by the syndicate of uh, money exchangers but they're the reportedly like the, this isn't really happening they're, they're reportedly not selling dollars right so if you want to take your dollars and give them to the exchange for 2000 lira you can do that but other way around not so much which is, is, is something that you know, absent some sort of facility from the central bank or something like that, it doesn't seem like this is a sustainable move. And I'm sure that very soon, if they haven't already started, the exchange dealers will start doing their sort of like side deals and uh, and going outside of the bounds of, of this, you know, new peg of 2000 to the dollar. Yeah. And, and the, the important thing about it as well is that, first of all, that, you know, it's just a trick. Like you can't uh, go and, and buy for 2000. You know, I just couldn't find it anywhere except in a few places on the first day that they announced and or the second day. And that was it. From then on, no one is selling dollars in large quantities or they're selling it at 2200 or 2550, etc. So anyway, what happened so far is that the Lira has almost officially now lost 30% of its value, right? From 1,500 to 2,000. And uh, I'm saying that because the exchange shops, before making the statement, they had met with the central bank governor and uh, they, they, they mentioned that in the statement. So they made it look official. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's still not a change on the official, you know, exchange rate. However, it's kind of, it looks like they're paving the way for something like that. Also, interestingly, this week, Ghazi Wazni made a very bold statement when he was being asked by a TV reporter about the lira. He said that the lira is never, like, it's impossible that the lira comes back to, to its original rate, its fixed rate, you know. The one that the central bank still says is the official rate. Which is very um, telling. Yeah, he said the parallel market can can uh, will go on for sure and will be changing and the lira will be fluctuating. It can be organized by bringing in new money and remittances. As usual, the only two solutions we have are remittances and, you know, more loans. And this is what Ghazi Wazni has been talking about in the last few days since he's been finance minister. Anyway, so he said, no, that's not possible. This will never happen. Uh, but the word never can be interpreted as not at all in Arabic dialect, in Lebanese Arabic dialect. So it might, that's why he gave himself the excuse the next day. And he said, no, no, I was saying like in the short term, it's not going to happen. But we don't know in the long term. In the long term, it might go back to 1,500. He's lying to you. It's not going to happen unless we have like an incredible economic transformation. Or, or policies that support that, right? Yeah. <laughs> you would have to have like real policies, not just hope for remittances and a world bank loan or something like that or you know saudi arabia to just like decide that oh yeah we really do want to support lebanon now even though we don't like their government uh yeah. you know that's it, it makes no sense the government actually if they're going to have 15 make it back to the real peg then they need like they need very very bold real uh policies to be to put to be put in place in order to make that happen and that yeah. doesn't seem like that's on the cards based on what the new finance minister is saying yeah, and I think more important than what he's saying is what he's um, like, what he's what, because when he when he was asked questions about what measures should be taken, he's like, we should send positive message to the inside and the outside, you know, the internal market and internal stakeholders and foreign stakeholders and, you know, restore confidence or whatever. He didn't say anything, basically anything about the measures, because what we we are concerned about now is that whether Lebanon, what how Lebanon will deal with its payments the upcoming payments um, we talk about in a second, or how, whether it will do a re rescheduling or, or a restructuring of public debt, which every economist now agrees has to be done. Instead, what the first thing that has he's done so far is basically 
he's met with the IMF and the World Bank, right? These were the first meetings that he's had. The two institutions that represent the global paradigm of neoliberal economic policies. He's met with both of them, and uh, we're in a situation where Lebanon is seriously talking, and many Lebanese officials are seriously talking about an IMF deal. You know, IMF giving us, for those who don't know, IMF is the International Monetary Fund. And uh, so the IMF might give us some money in return, not in return, but on the condition of doing some reforms. And when the IMF talks about reforms, this is like extreme austerity measures, not really reforms, just like reducing your fiscal spending as much as possible more than like transforming your economy into into a productive direction they don't really care about these things as much as like fiscal consolidation so anyway um he's he's now sitting with these two institutions these are the two institutions he sat with first and then he's seeking he said he's seeking loans soft loans uh, from abroad to um, help lebanon import medicine oil uh, oil and gas and wheat and then on the issue of lebanon like paying its public debt service its unbearable public debt service he he said that it, it will be considered it will be like um, discussed next week in the cabinet what we will do because we have eurobond payments soon in march etc but it's overall his paradigm is basically the same one because he was the financial advisor of Birri and of ali hassan khalil and instead of Ali Hassan Khalil, now we have him as, as finance minister. We should not expect anything different, except if Diab comes in with a, de- with a deal from like international actors that Berri cannot refuse. Otherwise, we will see more of the same, it seems. Yeah, and, and this um, this is an issue that is just barreling down on us. Uh, it's good that they're going to actually discuss it as early as, as this coming week. Like, I remember thinking about this, oh, March is so far away back, you know, back last year. And now we're, <laughs> yeah. we're at the end of January, uh, going into February. And this is like, literally, we, we've got $1.2 billion in principle due on March 9th. So it's not even the end of March. It's the beginning of March. And then from then on out, March, April, May, June, we have just massive, massive dollar payments to make every one of those months. So it, I mean, it totals up to something like three point more, more than $3.3 billion that the state has to pay in dollars between March and June of this year. And, so, that's, and that's very tricky, right? Because if you don't pay, the, if you say, I don't want to pay them, you're basically defaulting on your debt internationally, which is uh, scarier than internal debt, maybe. And um, if it does, uh, if Lebanon does pay this money, it means that it's not using it for the other main thing that it needs it for, which is covering the foreign exchange reserve, or enhancing the foreign exchange reserve so that it covers the or it prevents the huge depreciation of the lira for the dollar. So basically, central bank or the Lebanese state is making a decision now. And that's a very tricky one of whether saving uh, Lebanon's debt reputation, more or less, or its record of always paying back the debt that it owes, despite the incredible interest, or uh, saving the lira. Like, this, this, is, this is kind of the choice now. So if there's no debt restructuring program before March, if there's no announcement uh, by the Lebanese state that it will not pay back its, its debt fully, and it will restructure and reschedule some of it, then this means that we're in big trouble on the on the financial side, on the monetary side when it comes to um, how much we have in terms of purchasing, purchasing power. Yeah. And I, I want to note one thing really quickly on a sort of side related note. Uh, we're going over this fiscal cliff again this year. We don't have a budget for 2020. And in the Constitution, as listeners will recall from last year, that there's this uh, you know special mechanism 
that allows for the state to go through January without a budget. But then after that, it's just totally unconstitutional to have anything, you know, you, you have to have a budget by the end of January. You just have to, mm. um, even though really they did, they don't like last year, they didn't make it. And so like they, they ended up doing a couple of things. Uh, one was sort of like this, this memorandum that was signed by, I think the president, the prime minister and the finance minister. So you've got like three top people from Christian Sunni Shia, you know, all saying, okay, we're, we're going to keep, you know, basically making using this mechanism beyond January. Uh, and then Parliament came back and they sort of ratified that and said, no, we're going to keep using it despite the Constitution says, says you can't. We're going to keep using it anyway. So what's happening this week is Monday and Tuesday are scheduled to be budget sessions, full Parliament, talk about the budget. We don't know if those will actually happen or not, but if they do, theoretically, maybe Parliament can pass a budget before the end of January, then there's also a question, does it need to go back to the cabinet? Maybe it does need to go back to the cabinet and get endorsed there as well, because it's a new cabinet, all of that stuff. So theoretically, they may still like slide in under the line. But in mm. reality, it seems much more likely that we're going to have some sort of extra constitutional, not totally legal thing put in place, just like last year. And I believe the year before and before that, where uh, the state keeps on using this mechanism, this extraordinary mechanism out of context and against the law. We'll keep an eye on that. But yeah, I'd, I'd, like, I don't know, will, will the protesters even allow parliament to meet on Monday and Tuesday? Yeah, there's a big question on whether, you know, protesters will let the parliament meet to give the com- the government, the new government, uh, the confidence vote or to pass the budget because the last parliament attempt to have a parliament session failed because people basically blocked the, the various entrances and some scuffles uh, happened with, with many, many convoys, etc. But I think like uh, this week has proven that the momentum in the streets is getting much lower and we can maybe say that this is the end of the first of the the, uh, the first uprising if you want in the October 17 revolution more or less basically we saw a huge uh, like enormous nationwide popular grassroots uprising and now we're seeing much fewer actions happening but also we're seeing more centralized things happening and very, very small numbers compared to the ones before. So Wait, so are you saying, I mean, last Saturday, we weren't, we weren't able to cover this uh, because we had already recorded this, but last Saturday evening, there was a really huge like fight between uh, security forces and, uh, and protesters in downtown. Lots of people were injured, arrested, et cetera, and everything. Uh, are you saying that the state won? That they beat the protesters? No, no, I don't think so. I think the violence against protesters doesn't help the state or harms the movement so much. Uh, I don't think that this is... But if the state comes out like really hard and beats protesters down and now you're saying like this is the end... But this is the end not because of that. This is the end because people are extremely anxious about the economic situation and they want a government to try to do something because they don't believe that the political class will bring in a new government. This is what most people are telling us everywhere in Lebanon in most areas in Lebanon at least like this is the overwhelming kind of uh, sense of you know kind of giving in just like letting them try to do anything about the situation just in case maybe they can uh, convince or force the banks to change the rules the very human so they're, they're giving the Diab have. government a chance you think I think so yeah I think um, at least two-thirds of the population are doing around two-thirds maybe of the population more or less are doing this and um, this is interesting because some people might see it with a lot of you know a lot of uh, pessimism or oh, the revolution is over etc the revolution in Lebanon against 
in such a system against such an establishment cannot be happen in, in, at once. It's just impossible, right? It cannot. You're not overthrowing a dictator. You're not overthrowing a military regime or whatever. It's something that's much more complicated. You need to go through many stages, including probably uprisings in the streets, including elections. And we are witnessing the end of the first uprising and pr- probably what's going to be a longer revolution. Because we were look, we were just talking about uh, how Diab's government is basically a continuation of the same economic elite's uh, rule in Lebanon. And if that's the case, then the policies that we actually need to save the country economically will not be done, will not be enacted, including, most importantly, a debt restructuring uh, plan. If this doesn't happen, along with uh, many things that can bring in money to the state from mostly the banks and and, uh, the very few that own a lot of money and wealth, then basically they will not be able to save uh, save us from this situation and they will crash and they will have probably another uprising that will be slightly more violent. Uh, At least my prediction will be that it will be more violent, more aggressive and also um, more difficult to recover from than this one. Uh, so I believe that we're entered, we have entered into this, pos- this period of time, maybe three, four, five months that is between the two uprisings of, of the revolution. Well, it, it seems as though also if you look just from a political angle, if you are one of the parties that stayed out of government, so you're with the future movement or the PSP technically, or with the Lebanese forces especially, then if just from a political calculation, you know, thing like you, you have to appear to be giving, you know, the next, the next government like a chance. Right. But that could last like as short as like a couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. It, it could be very, very short on the political side until we see sort of like the, the, the politically backed protesters really out I- in force. Um, what seems, or maybe they won't what even seems leave. to be the case is that political parties that have been kind of left out or it seems they are left out of, of, of the cabinet are not so aggressive against the cabinet, right? No one has a very escalatory tone. Jumblat was like, it's better than not having a government at all. Hariri, he made a few statements, but it's not it's not clear that he's, you know, against it. He's not mobilizing. We know our parties, when, they, when they're mobilizing against each other, they get really nasty doing that, and they will use all sorts of tools and propaganda. They're not doing it. So there is a reason why Jumblat and Hariri are not they're not so provoked by this government there is there are some there's something that they got in return for this kind of tolerance towards it uh, because otherwise we know and we've seen them in 2008 since 2008 w- how far they will go when they have a political battle to wage against uh, the march 8 you know political parties and also um, there was a lot of talk about early elections right and the demands of a lot of people the second demand was like always a government that oversees early elections early parliamentary elections i don't think it's gonna happen when hassan diab was asked about it he said we will have to revise the law or or draft a new law and then send it to parliament and when parliament approves it it comes back to us and we approve it then we can have the elections this this was his response when he was asked specifically if we will have an early parliamentary election which means that this was this is kind of also i mean neither hariri nor jumblat i mean maybe the alaf are the only political group that would actually win anything more than they have if an election happens today from the establishment parties and maybe Qatar would win one or two seats but like more or less all the political establishment is, is in this place where they don't want people to vote for or against them at this point they want to, they want they don't want to know how people th- how people are thinking about them because they know that, that their approval rates in general are at probably a historic low 
So you're stuck with us. And this new cabinet that we just cooked up really has a little something for everybody, probably. Uh, and it was devised under the same, you know, formulas as before. So that's it. <laughs> Welcome to the new government. <laughs> yeah. New government, same old problems. That seems to be like the running theme so far uh, of 2020. It's just like, oh, we've seen this movie before. Yeah. It doesn't It doesn't end well. But one good thing is that Hassan Diab said, who knows how this government will last? One month, six months, a year, whatever. But when he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, exactly. One month sounds great. No, like, uh, l- like really, it's uh, it's uh, we have a lot to um, to see this year. What's gonna happen? But nobody's expecting good stuff. So it's just about how long things last in the situation before things explode more and more. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, on that note, I think that's all the time we have. Uh, we'll we'll be back next week with another fascinating, riveting, and ever optimistic episode (laughs) of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Uh, Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.